Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby. We are thankful that you have joined us today. This is the work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We're located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. You can reach us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, That You May Grow Thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I'm one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. I'm Jacob Taylor, one of the evangelists. I'm Ross Oldenkamp, also an evangelist. We turn our attention today, initially, to the question of tribute to Caesar. It's found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Again, that's Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. It is also found in Mark chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 20, but we're focusing our attention on Matthew's account. Ross, you want to read it? Yes. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they said to, they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, perceiving their wickedness, said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Thinking of the Pharisees and the other leaders of the Jews, having failed in their attempt to discredit the Lord's position by questioning his authority, that was a couple of episodes ago, and then having felt the brunt of his rebuke in the three parables that we just examined yesterday, the Pharisees now took counsel to determine what are they going to do next? What was their next course of action? This happened on the same day. And what they did is they decided to send some of their disciples to Jesus to see if they could ensnare him in his talk. You know, I don't know, but perhaps these, as their disciples, were younger men and would have a desire to learn and apparent sincerity. Maybe those individuals would be able to trick Jesus into saying something that could be used against him. But you know what's even more disturbing is the inclusion of the Herodians in their plot. Because the Herodians and the Pharisees were natural enemies within the Jewish community. They were absolutely on opposite sides of practically all things religious and all things Jewish. The Herodians actually supported the Herod family. Hence the name, which family ruled through the favor of Rome. That obviously made them in favor of paying tribute to Caesar. The Pharisees, on the other hand, viewed the paying of tribute to a foreign power as a national tragedy. They did not advocate open rebellion against Rome because of it, but they definitely were not in favor of it. But they were both willing to lay aside their differences because of their common hatred of Jesus, the Herodians and the Pharisees together. Who would ever have thought it? 
Yeah, it really does show that uh, some things never change. You know, that uh, nothing is new under the sun. This Their behavior is politics as usual. We see it even today. Uh, you know, that's what... Uh, that's what our White House press secretary has to deal with all of the time, um, where uh, in politics, no matter who's in charge, they constantly those who try to entangle people by asking difficult questions and trying to, to catch someone in a uh, contradiction. And we see also what's not uh, uh, something that is just as old as dirt is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So watch out when you've got two enemies uniting with a common purpose. Um, I'm, I noticed when I read verse 16, um, I think that you would call this, uh, insincerity. This is, this is flattery, uh, clear and simple. And, there is a great proverb that speaks to this kind of insincere love that is shown, and it warns in Proverbs 26, uh, verse 20, uh, 24, He who hates disguises it with his lips and lays up deceit within himself. When he speaks kindly, do not believe him. Though his hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed. And so it talks about the one who hides it with his lips, but inwardly there is hate, uh, hatred. And you see this in the flattery of, of the Pharisees here. Yeah, to that same idea, I know Luke's account renders it um, in chapter 20, verse 20, calling them spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement. And that, that leads into exactly what Ross was talking about, of the, the flattering statement that they're going to make. And um, certainly with the character of how they were speaking to Jesus in a lot of instances, just in reading it, we would be, well, why are they being so kind to him in this way and calling him a teacher, truthful, teaching the way of God and truth with when their actions clearly show they don't believe it. And that's what it, exactly what it was, as Ross was saying. They were pretending to be righteous. They were um, acting in a way that was hiding their hatred. And then we, we see, though, that even in the midst of that, Jesus knows exactly what they are after, what they are trying to do, um, and is going to teach them in a way that doesn't allow them to catch him in any form um, of, of trouble, of sin. And he um, does, and at, as the end of verse 22, we'll talk about, all, and hearing this, they were amazed. They left him and went away. There was nothing, nothing that could be done. Um, and this is something that's going to continue to happen as we go throughout um, the next few verses. As I look at the response of these individuals, I'm kind of reminded a little bit of Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So the question is, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Just consider for a minute the dilemma that they figured they'd put Jesus in. The Jews were required by law to pay a large sum of money each year to the Roman government as acknowledgement of their being in subjection to them. It has been estimated to have been approximately 600 talents. Now, from what I have been able to ascertain, a talent of that day was worth somewhere between 960 to $1,180. This money was spent upon the maintenance of the province itself, roads, harbors, 
government buildings, etc., with any leftover being sent to Rome. About 20 years before this time, Judas of Galilee had stirred up the people in a revolt against Rome that included refusal to pay this tribute. The revolt was viciously crushed, but the masses of the Jews were bitterly opposed to this tribute anyway. So if Jesus said they were to pay this tribute, the Pharisees felt that he would be alienating himself from the common people who were listening, which would make putting him to death much easier. On the other hand, if Jesus said they should not pay the tribute, or the Herodians were there to hear, and they would have placed Jesus in open rebellion to the policies of Rome. So it appears to be a rather precarious position to find oneself in. Yeah, you know, it is rooted, their argument is rooted in truth, in that, yes, this is the land that God gave to the Jews. And so their argument that, well, paying tribute to Romans, I mean, that's just an insult. I mean, that's that's not honoring God. How can we pay tribute to any other God or man or kingdom? This is God's land. And so trying to think that Rome was an illegitimate force uh, or authority in God's uh, possession uh, fails to recognize that they have lost the rights. They've lost privileges to that land because of their unfaithfulness. And God said, uh, you know, in his covenant, if you're unfaithful, I'll take it away from you. I also like that, um, or like to point out that Jesus, when, when giving this answer, it wasn't that he chose an answer that was going to allow him to escape um, the, the accusations from either side and, some, and that that answer didn't align with God's word and will. It, it also did that. It allowed him to, there was nothing that they could use um, to accuse him of, and also it was God's word. It was what God wants, um, which I think is just also um, a neat thing to point out. You know, do, you, do you suppose Rome ever used that money for anything that a Christian would find objectionable? I would think so, yes. <laughs> and it, and yet, the teaching of Jesus is pay your taxes. Right. Even though there wasn't a more corrupt state than Rome at the time. And uh, just a very simple kind of a side lesson uh, being brought forth from that. Well, you know, knowing full well their trap and rebuking them for their wickedness, Jesus asked to be shown the tribute money. Receiving a denarius, he simply asked, whose image and superscription is on this? Told that it was Caesar's, Jesus said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. What an incredible answer that was. The question had involved giving tribute. Jesus' reply was pay. It was two different words with two different meanings. They did receive benefits from the Roman government, and that part of his answer satisfied the Herodians. At the same time, Rome permitted them the freedom to exercise their religion so they were free to give to God the things that belonged to God. Once again, the Lord's enemies had failed miserably in their attempt to ensnare him. Luke tells us they could not take hold of his words before the people. We are told that they marveled at his answer. I would like to think that when they compared the wisdom of Jesus with those teachers whose disciples they were, They turned around and followed Jesus, but there is no 
indication of that. Anybody else have anything to say on this? Okay, let's move ahead and look at a very interesting question, a question related to the resurrection. It's found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. It's also found in Mark 12 and in Luke chapter 20. We'll focus our attention upon Matthew's account, verses 23 through 33. It says, On that day some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, and the first married and died, and having no children he left his wife to his brother. It was the same also with the second brother, and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her in marriage. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, since you do not understand the scripture nor the power of God. From the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of, of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Think of what we have here now. We've got the Pharisees, we have the Sadducees, and we have the Herodians, all of whom have joined forces in their desire to kill Jesus. In this particular situation, it's now the Sadducees who put forth the question concerning the resurrection to Jesus because they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees were a corrupt, skeptical, kind of political religious body. One of their peculiar views was that there was no resurrection of the dead. Instead of a political question, they asked a religious or a doctrinal question. They hoped to show that Jesus' teaching concerning the question of the resurrection was ridiculous. I mean, after all, just imagine seven men fighting in heaven over one woman. They used as a basis for their question the law of the Liverite marriages. Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 and 6 tell us, If brethren dwell together, and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, and take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. The purpose of the law was to prevent a family from becoming extinct in a particular relationship, that, that his name be not put out of Israel, and to secure the property of a family from passing into the hands of anybody else. Using this well-known law as a basis, the Sadducees must have believed that they had placed Jesus upon the horns of an unanswerable dilemma. They were wrong. Uh, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, at, at some point, you'd think one of these husbands would say, no, no, honey, you don't need to cook for me. Maybe we'll go out to dinner. But, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of laughable just to think of this scenario where a woman is married to seven husbands how I wonder how many times did this kind of thing happen? I I bet that it is 
very few and far between that you've got something this bizarre happening with this woman. And I think it illustrates uh, what happens even today, uh, how people often create bizarre theoretical circumstances in order to circumvent the truth. You know, you, you concoct some sort of story that seems to put God's truth uh, in an uncomfortable position, and you think, well, that can't be true because of this situation. Why not rather just let, let a circumstance as, as obscure as, as they are, why not let God judge that and stop trying to uh, take matters of judgment into our own hands? love the latter part of Jesus' answer when he um, really jumps at, um, certainly specifically, as he says in verse 31, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Mark's and, Mark and Luke's account of this, this same instance points out the, the context of what Jesus is quoting in verse 32, which is from the burning bush um, with, with Moses. And Moses being told by God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. All three of those men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are all dead physically um, at this time and certainly have been so for a good amount of time, especially Abraham and Isaac. And so it's certainly showing um, for them it's that God is the God of not of the dead, of the living. Um, and it's not about that they were alive physically, but spiritually. Um, and I, I can just imagine the Sadducees who um, I, I would imagine almost devised this plan of how they were going to catch Jesus up and trap him. And then hearing that, and as it says in verse 33, that the crowds hear this and they're astonished at his teaching. I think when I think of that word, just like another level above amazed. Um, it, it's just a remarkable thing, again, of them not able to... Um, catch Jesus because they didn't understand the scriptures. Uh, as verse 29 talked about, Jesus said that they are mistaken since they don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. Um, but Jesus understood it fully. After all, he's the one who it's all about. And so it's um, just a beautiful story. You know, the passage Jesus quoted was Exodus chapter 3, verse 16, or 6 and 15. When God made that statement, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as Jacob pointed out, had been long dead, yet God spoke to them as still being their God. Well, how could he be the God of someone who had ceased to exist altogether? That was ridiculous. Therefore, they had to once again recognize the fact that there is an existence beyond this life. And that's what Jesus was making them, uh, forcing them to reach that conclusion. Yeah, if I were to ask, uh, to whom did God say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We would probably answer like Mark's account of this story in chapter 12, 26. It says that God spoke to him, that is Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham. But Matthew's account actually says, have you not read what was spoken to you? by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This shows that what God said to Moses was also just as much intended for this generation and every generation. It shows the importance of careful Bible study and, uh, and pondering 
why is it that scripture says it this way? Why is it in this tense that it is said? Why is this word plural rather than singular? These are these are the kinds of questions that we can ask and really learn some precious truths because if they had asked or pondered the tense of I am versus I was, then they would not be operating under this misconception that there is no resurrection. Okay, let's go ahead and look at the question concerning the great greatest commandment. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, and also in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. I'll go ahead and read Matthew's account. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. This is what we find. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You know, as the Pharisees listened to the reply of Jesus to the Sadducees, they recognized that he had answered them well and had given them no opportunity to ensnare him. They now put forth a question who, from Mark's account, appears to have been personally sincere, but from Matthew's account was being used as part of a general attack on Jesus' day. The question was, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What commandment is first of all? You know, evidently this was a question often argued among the rabbis. Which commandment was the greatest? Some did believe it to be the law concerning sacrifices. Others the wearing of phylacteries, and still others about purification. Anyway, that Jesus answered, he would be offending someone who held to a particular view. So he responded by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is the first commandment. This is the greatest because it is the foundation of the entire law of God. It forbids all sins against God and demands love for and of him. The second is from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, relating to our relationship with our fellow man. We will not mistreat those that we love, and we are to love others as we love ourselves. These two laws encompass all aspects of the law and the prophets. I'm intrigued by, and this this is seen in, in Mark's account, but she is saying to to this man, after he... Um, the, he makes this answer. The scribe is going to say, "Well said, teacher," and and essentially um, repeats back what Jesus said to him. Um, and Jesus will say in verse Mark chapter twelve, verse thirty four, um, when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, "You are not far from the kingdom of God." And no one dared any longer to question him. Um, I, I find that 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 response of Jesus um, ex- extremely intriguing. You know, perhaps it was this man knew the answer, knew the need to have this relationship with Jesus and had, and was close, but not there yet. Perhaps he was in the right path and was on the right way, just hadn't made it there yet, hadn't added Jesus to the picture. But whatever it was, I think it's just a pretty neat thing 
that he was he was close. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Or do we relate to the um, to this man, this situation? Are we trying to figure out what we need to do to be a part of the kingdom of God? Are we looking for those who aren't um, too far and, and looking for all people, obviously, to try and bring them to the kingdom? But certainly looking of what aid we can be, to especially those who are who are close. Yeah, you know, uh, Paul told Timothy that the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. All of God's commandments, the purpose really, even the prohibitions are rooted in love. God's commandments are for our good always. I really like, when Jesus says all these, uh, uh, these commandments hang all the law and the prophets, all of them rooted in love for God and loving one another. I love the breakdown of the Ten Commandments showing this. The first four commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, the fifth commandment is a beautiful transition because it's honor your father and mother. Of course, we have our heavenly father who needs to be honored, but we also honor our earthly fathers and mothers. And then commandments 6 through 10, love your neighbor as yourself. It's just a beautiful, out, beautifully outlined treatise. Very good. That's going to have to do it as far as this episode is concerned. We appreciate so very much each and every one of you who is listening. Tell your friends that they might enjoy and learn from that you may grow thereby. Until next time, thanks for listening.